0: Data, only the best guests to educate our audience. History, unapologetically honest conversations. Welcome to YPay, The Case for Reparations. Hey everyone, uh, this is Alan Holmes. This is the first episode of the year. This is a uh, Pay Pod. And this is the first episode of a a series that we will call Faces of Reparations. And what we wanna do is that we wanna put a face to any and everybody who supports reparations um, to have that discussion, but also to learn uh, a little bit more about people, uh, their professions, what they do, and just have a general conversation. Uh, Today, we have Mr. Gabe Piamonte uh, with us today from Chicago, Illinois. You can uh, introduce yourself to the audience, Gabe. Hello, everybody.
1: Hello, Alan. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm so grateful to be with you here today.
0: Listen, we're glad you're here, man. We're going to get into it because, you know, I I was thankful and and lucky enough to, um, to connect with you on Twitter amongst all the other people who support reparations for descendants of slaves. So I definitely am glad that you decided to come on. Um, So for our audience, uh, Gabe Piamonte is a longtime activist, nonprofit leader, as well as the founder of a credit union and a banking uh, financial institution to help individuals in Chicago. Um, He has also run for office for alderman in Chicago. uh, But Gabe is a communications consultant and professional, so he has worked with numerous um political candidates and elected officials and refining their communication strategy. And he's just an overall good and passionate person. He's an ally of all who um, are descendants of slaves and who are pushing for reparations. So we're just happy to have him on. So we're gonna get into question one, Gabe. Um, you know, we, we did our research on you, you know, we we look up everybody and we <laughs> saw that, you know, despite, I mean, uh, along with you running for office, um, You just have a long history of kind of just get, getting uh, work done and doing the hard, necessary work uh, as re- as it relates to civic engagement and community involvement. Uh, we know you're not afraid to roll up your sleeves. So um, we just want you to tell our audience about some of the initiatives that you've been a part of, such as the, uh, the uh, Southside Community Federal Credit Union the Woodlawn Voices and Visions, as well as the Coalition to Save Jackson Park. So just tell us a little bit about these um, initiatives.
1: I, I sure will, uh, Alan, and, and thank you again. So, um, I as as I'm sure you've noticed on Twitter, I, I like to run my mouth. In fact, I kinda can't, sometimes I feel like I can't help it. Um, no, we all, we love to. We do, we do, we all wanna be in the conversation. Uh, I've always felt like, you have a better uh, kind of right in a way to be a part of the conversation if you're also a part of the work. I think it's really easy to think of yourself as the idea person, like, well, I'm just gonna come up with the ideas and other people can implement, but that's not really that helpful. And especially in these instances, so what we're talking about is my work has been on the south side of Chicago. I've lived on the south side of Chicago for 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. I am, I do like to think of myself as an ally. I certainly am white. So I, I'm of Italian descent, I'm Italian American. Um, so I, I am at best an ally, and I hope that I am a good good ally as, as much as I can be. So in order for me to really be involved in this, this sort of conversation, the only standing in my view you have as an ally is an ally who's done work. And so, um, this all kind of began for me as a journey many, many years ago, but the work that we're talking about in Chicago really, I think, began with that credit union in which I was one of uh, many co-organizers uh, uh, of, the, of the credit union, and we worked together as a team, black and white, several south outside neighborhoods represented, um, led by uh, a long-time... Um, community activist and advocate, Cecilia Butler, um, a, a wonderful uh, woman from the Washington Park community, and Al Hofell, who, um who is a great guy um, from, uh, he, he had uh, done a lot of work in the Woodlawn community where I'm from, and uh, had gone to school at the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. And so here you have this, uh, this white guy and, and this uh, black woman who got together and, Said, you know, we need a financial institution that belongs to us, and a whole bunch of us kind of rallied under them. There were probably eight or ten of us that, day in, day out, for about two and a half years, we collected signatures, we got pledges, we did all the work we had to do to get that uh, application for a charter in, and we opened it up. Today, eighteen years later, that credit union has about two million dollars in loans out in the wow. on the south side of Chicago, overwhelmingly. To uh, the families and individuals who are descendants of slavery um, that's the focus area of our of our charter geographically, and many of those are loans you couldn't get from a, a bank, uh, for example, probably our most popular loan product is a used car loan, and we've got hundreds of those out right now, so you have the opportunity to get a car, you know maybe it's not that brand new car in the lot. Uh, but it's, it's going to do the job for you. And so it's a few thousand dollars. You don't have that kind of money, but this is going to get you opportunity. You can go to the credit union and pay that little car note instead of paying either the big one from a dealership selling you new or these guys that make you pay every week. And it's a it's you know, it it's seems like the, you just can't stop paying it. It's It's about it's about fighting against predators. And that's and that's kind of the common theme in a lot of the work that I do is that we've got. Folks that in our communities, they're there to really extract wealth and value
0: from us, and we have to fight against that by working Absolutely. together. Absolutely, and I, I want to applaud you for what you and uh, all the other community leaders did to create that credit union. Because, you Thank know, you. when I was younger, uh, when my credit wasn't where it is now, I tried to get a you know auto loan through a credit union uh, before I went to the dealership. You know, I didn't, you know, I I wasn't kind of as proactive as I should have been as far as establishing a uh-huh. relationship with a credit union, which I have now, but then oh, I did Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, so I couldn't get the loan. Now, right. I got taken advantage of by, you know, signing onto a predatory subprime auto loan. So mm-hmm. it's a blessing what you all are doing to give people affordable payments to where they can get a used car for a few thousand dollars, as opposed to being preyed upon when they go into the dealership to get dealer financing, like I did, and uh, you know, and 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 it's 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 something that I'm still paying for uh, right now. Um, and I and I, and ironically, the company that I initially got my uh, loan through, which is Santander Consumer USA, they're they're one of the biggest predators. They were actually sued and settled with six or seven different states, including Georgia for pushing illegal subprime loan, auto loans, and they had to pay a $500 million fine. And so-
1: Dude, That's it, literally criminal.
0: Oh, it's criminal. And so they were charging people interest rates of, some people were uh, th- almost 30%.
1: Outrageous, Yeah, Out, it, outrageous. Yeah, yeah. so
0: it, it's a blessing what you guys are doing to try to help people avoid that situation. So that's good, but, um, but yeah, we're gonna go on to the second question, Gabe. Because we think that um, what you did already in Chicago is great, but I want to dig into just some things that I've researched about the city of Chicago. Um, just a, just a, just a, a, a eye-opening analysis that was done. I'm sure you read the article regarding black homeowners in Chicago that were robbed of three to 4 billion in wealth. Yes. Between 1950 and 1960 due to contract buying. So, you know, it's just staggering. I mean, look, if, if we did a reparations pilot program and we picked a certain number of cities, I feel like based on instances like this that happened in the city of Chicago, the City of Chicago would be a great city to begin a pilot program.
1: If we're gonna you have be giving to. our
0: cash payments to anybody. So I want you to dig into any instances of policy you can discuss the contract buying and what you know about it or any other instances that you've witnessed, uh, as it relates to poverty in Chicago and how black people are treated in the city absolutely so this is a problem that really uh,
1: continues is is ongoing although the the wolf has put on different sheep's clothing um, middle of the 20th century exactly what you're describing it, it this is really important history um where you know folks looking for a place to live would uh because everyone was aware of the prejudice and the the challenges with finding Um, uh, you know, getting a mortgage, finding uh, a home loan, Uh, there were outrageous terms that were given to black folks. uh, And they knew that they didn't have a lot of options. So uh, people would make uh, arrangements because really, you're between a rock and a hard place, you're either renting a a, a slum, uh, really um, unhealthy uh, apartment. and, And that's a whole nother story about the kinds of places that people were able to um, rent and how small they were and in what bad condition they were, or you try to do something a little better for yourself. But the devil literally, in my opinion, is in the details in these agreements where often people would put a, just a ton of money into a what they thought was basically a mortgage, but it would turn out that they really hadn't bought anything. And that continues essentially to this day. And, and we just not too long ago saw a wave in the early 2000s, as a kind of forensic analysis of the the predatory home loans that were being made back then uh, took place, we realized that it was the same sort of deal where people were agreeing, were signing on to mortgages that didn't really help them create wealth for them and their families. And overwhelmingly, and this is this is why, you know, when I say predators in uh, Black communities, this is what I'm talking about, overwhelmingly impacting Black communities. So we Often people like to talk about the prejudices and the discrimination and the policies that impact all people of color or all poor people. Consistently, consistently, it is the descendants of slavery who are disproportionately impacted and that is not a mistake. And I think for those of us who have done this work for a while, what we realize is that it is not only not a mistake, it's the point. Other people get caught in the wake of the racist practices that are actually foundational. It's not incidental. It's not one person's bad uh, moral character. Our system is built on oppression
0: and abuse of descendants of slavery. And that's what we have to fight against. That's what we have to recognize. Yeah, we have to fight against it and we have to provide restitution. I mean, I just, and I, you know, I tweeted about this today. You know, it, it's time for an end to these programs. I mean, just think about how many federal, state, or local programs have been implemented since slavery ended. And yet, the material wealth condition of black people has not improved. Um, And it's kind of insane to think that you have people in the highest levels of our government who are proposing more programs and not cash. The only thing that hasn't been attempted is cash payment. The only thing that has been attempted are programs that have failed. So we have to shift from the programs. Programs aren't going to do this because they've had their chance, and if it had worked, we wouldn't be having this discussion. So I think you know it's it's something that we need to most certainly um, look into. And I mean, like with the amount of money three to four billion that Chicago homeowners lost, we need to give them money and restitution. We a program is not going to do anything. No. and that's what's just maddening to me, is that people can't understand that we're talking about money. And so right. we, the only way you can repair that is through monetary means, not a program. Yeah, I, there's no question about
1: that. And I think, you know, to me, there is the idea that in any society, you have to have a safety net kind of in general, because people, for all kinds of different reasons, need a helping hand every once in a while. What everyone needs to understand is we are not talking about that. What we're talking about is centuries of theft and subsequent uh, uh, practices that double down on that theft. So this is not a handout, this is not a hand up. This is essentially the, the federal government taking money from people, taking resources from people without their permission, but okay, now it's happened. You owe that money, regardless of how you got it. We are still spending, we are still benefiting from, we are still living, literally, in the shadow of the resources that belong to uh, enslaved citizens. Our cities are the infrastructure that were built by people who were enslaved. And so we're still spending your money and not giving it back. And, And that's the thing that people need to understand. It's not, This isn't about food stamps. This isn't about uh, public housing. This isn't about uh, any kind of a welfare program. Those are good and necessary. In my opinion, every society needs to have that safety net. This is a whole separate thing. And so when you want to have the conversation around any kind of social good you want to do in America, I say, that's fine. I'll talk to you about that. First, you're going to talk to us about reparations because that comes first. If you do not fix the problem that we created ourselves, if you don't fix that first, the other stuff isn't gonna work. And as you say, we've tried it time and time again, and we've seen it fail time and time again.
0: Absolutely, and, and, and let me rephrase. I don't think there's anything wrong with a program right. in addition to the reparations, because yeah. most certainly I had a discussion with a friend of mine about this, is that um, we need the programs. On top of the reparations, On yes, we need of, some programs you. for small businesses. Yes, we need um, programs regarding education and housing. But first, we need the cash. It is. This is just. This is like a business transaction. We yes. need the back pay. Yes, and it's and, the back pay. And, yeah, that's and, right. that, and that's it. That's it. So, one thing we're going to talk about now. We're going to shift a little bit. And basically we want to get your thoughts on cuz we really need some insight from you here seriously. Uh you don't have to care about reparations to be honest with you. You could just go about your life, Gabe, you can just, you know, raise your family, be a good husband, be a good father, do what you're doing in the community. You don't have to care. You could just kind of go about your daily life and not even give a damn about reparations. You know, what I guess why are you passionate about it is a question, but also what does the strategy need to be to get more allies who are not black and descendants of slaves to support reparations for descendants of slaves? And I'm talking about the people who are not black, who don't have an opinion for or against and you need the education. I'm not talking about the people who are adamantly against it because they cannot move. So, so, what are your thoughts on that on the strategies that maybe need to be implemented that that maybe should maybe I'm missing maybe other people are missing. um We want you to talk about that a little bit i I
1: appreciate that question, and I really appreciate the insight that you bring to this conversation in in kind of the series of questions you're asking. This one I think is so important because just as a practical matter, what we're talking about is uh is passing a law in Congress, that means we need to convince people in 50 states that um, this is a good idea. And in a lot of those states, we're talking about overwhelmingly white communities. Certainly there are enough white people in America that it's real hard to get anything like this done, trying to go around them. So, and then we're not even talking about Asian folks, uh, Latino, you know, they're just, if you, if you try to go, go it alone, as uh, descendants of of slavery, it's just very, very difficult. Um, And I don't see, in fact, how how it could happen. So we've gotta figure out how to get people to understand. Now, my journey, I could spend this whole podcast talking about how I ended, ended up here, but I can say this much, as a responsible citizen, I've always felt like it's my job to participate in the solutions. And again as I said at the top of the conversation in a way I don't think you you know you shouldn't complain a whole lot if you haven't made an effort to solve problems what I came back to again and again in my work is that this is the seminal problem that in America if you want to try to get anything done that's about justice you have to start with this reparative act if you want to really understand America your analysis always brings you back to slavery this is this is are foundational injustice, and so just like there are things about uh, the the American experiment, as people call it, that are potentially positive, that are good ideas uh, about equality and 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 giving people you know equal justice and all of that, there's this idea that we could not only that that it's okay to enslave some number of citizens, but that we can then have a conversation as if we hadn't done that so we can have all you can read all these speeches about how we should treat people equally and we should give everyone justice while people are enslaved to me you're not sane if you don't see this as the basic problem in america because even today you hear politicians talking out of both sides of their neck and the reason they do it is that's actually a cultural tradition so if you want to understand the world and if you want to make a positive difference in the world you have to deal with the world as it is. And in America that means you deal with slavery. Now what's difficult for a white person, those there's all kinds of objections. My you know my uh, ancestors didn't own slaves. I you know I'm not prejudiced, but I don't see why I should have to help these people out in like that. The challenge, and you said it earlier, Alan, I really believe the challenge is education, and it's not just um, learning the history, which in and of itself is important, but people need to be in proximity to one another to understand the situation. And I think a a lot of white Americans would be shocked. I live in a neighborhood that's around 90% black and probably 90% of that 90% are descendants of slavery. And I don't think people understand how hard working, how like real difficult the obstacles that my neighbors face every day that white people just don't face. And how, how much people are working in good faith every day. To try to make their communities better, to try to raise their kids the right way, doing their best every day. I think there's a prejudice, and because we're not exposed to one another, it's not dispelled. That thinks that I don't know, you know, I must live in a neighborhood of people sitting on their front porches all day, getting high. Uh, you know, kids running around in the streets with machetes. I don't know what people think, but there's this idea that th- these are not. Uh, people who deserve right that it's undeserving that's why you have poverty is people aren't working or and so i think uh, you need white people to see and realize and understand that we're everyone's doing the best they can and when you have a community that consistently runs into challenges around incarceration around violence around uh, poverty that it is not logical to assume that it's those people it might sound reasonable like well hey why do these people keep having these problems it must be you know but in fact go to the community live in the community or just spend time with people and in that place and you'll see you know there's something else going on here it doesn't take much after that once you get to the point of understanding and feeling for one another that you say okay this is this is obviously a problem that was set in motion long before any of us were born and you know, you hope that enough people understand that that you move. We don't need everyone; we just need enough. We probably need, need about thirty-five percent. Is my, you know, my naive—not naive, but not—you know—I'm not super uh, experienced on national politics. But I figure, if about thirty-five percent of the country, say of of white people in the country, says um, this is a good idea, we probably have the numbers you think about what the numbers probably looked like for emancipation, and it was probably right in that, in that ballpark. So I think it's, it's, it's feasible, and it's even within reach, if you look at the, um, the surveys Pew and some other people have done. I, I think sometimes it feels hopeless because we know so many white people who are so dead set against this idea. But Alan, you hit the nail on the head earlier. Let's not talk about them. Let's not focus on them. There's a big middle of white people who are just ignorant in not an insulting way, but literally do not have the knowledge and the experience to, to have an educated opinion on this.
0: And yeah, you're right. And I think it's white people, black people, there's a lot of people who yes. are, and you know what, It's it comes down to some people not knowing how bad it is, right? not knowing how far behind we are, but not knowing, not understanding that the way the data is set up and the, all the work that Professor Darity, you know, Tom Talks, Yvette Carnell and other people have have dedicated to just educating people on the numbers. Right. People are, a lot of people are not aware of how this whole wealth situation works. And so once right. they understand how little progress we've made and how far we're behind through that education, I'm hopeful that, you know, more people will come around Now, let me ask you, uh, we got another question kind of about, you know, your job. So you're a communications professional. Um, Yes. Just tell our audience a little bit about um, how you came to want to pursue that type of career and uh, what you like the most about the communications field and maybe just hit on some of um, the most memorable clients that you worked for or um, that you enjoyed uh, being a part of. So I uh I I I got a degree
1: my my uh bachelor's is in communications and journalism and and those are most of my professional work has been in one or the other so I I really enjoy community media and in communications I've done most of my work um advising either um politicians candidates or civic organizations and I've enjoyed all of it they, I really appreciate i think we tend to think the worst of politicians because they're often um not making the decisions we want but a lot of good people uh run and a lot of and and some good people actually make it in and then struggle with how to make a difference in a difficult structure though there are good people there i enjoy doing that it allows me to uh continue to keep my skills sharp which i then am able to use in the service of other organizations that are maybe, you know, less in a position to actually hire someone, but still need that help. So, you know, I'll do something as simple as connect a small nonprofit or um, advocacy project to a media list and give them a simple tool like MailChimp or Constant Contact and say, Hey, this is how you can send your press release out to a thousand reporters. here Here's a list of those thousand reporters. And this is how you can tell who is interested and not interested, even if they don't get back to you. And that simple, you know, just being able to put that formula in the hands of people who are not given that opportunity all the time, I think it'd be very powerful. Uh, for example, Bobby Rush, uh, who I, he, he's my um, congressman. I have some issues with Bobby and we're not going to get into all that. Uh, but he he's been there for a long time and had three progressive candidates running against him in the last go around. And Bobby tends to really he, he's a very powerful campaign uh, campaign um, uh, runs a, very, a really good campaign and is a powerful campaigner himself. And so uh, there were a couple of out of these three there there were a couple who I thought were really strong. And so not necessarily in the interest of picking someone and and trying to beat out somebody else, but in the interest of kind of making the fight a a little more fair, I worked with two of his um, opponents in helping to sharpen their message, helping to get their message out to the press. And to me, that felt like conversation came up in that campaign. Issues were raised in that campaign that otherwise may not have been brought up. And I think that's what I feel really good about is being able to do that. The other side of my work is uh, I'm a, a writing coach and an editor and I really enjoy that kind of one-on-one work. And I work with everyone from high school kids to people getting the dissertations to CEOs. And um, there's a different kind of uh, uh, pleasure in, in that kind of just helping a person find their voice in, in writing. And that's a lot of fun for me too.
0: That's good. And listen, it's, it's necessary to put pen to pad. I mean, I, yes. you know, I do some <laughs> copywriting and I do a lot of, you know, copy for Facebook ads, and and you know, 150 to 200 word blog posts for SEO. Uh, so I understand the power of words. I mean, you're a professional in the game, though, in the communications game. So listen, we need people like yourself, as well as thank you. What you do to help organizations who might not necessarily have the budget to pay you what you could require if you chose to. Um So it's good to volunteer your time and, you know, help out community groups. Cause I mean, that's what it's about. Um,
1: so Good our question. last
0: question yeah, is going to center around HR 40. So I, I think you okay. see my thoughts on it. We could go back and forth all night. So yeah. what are your thoughts on the prospects of it being amended as well as kind of where you see things going in the next two years, given that, we don't know what's going to happen after two years in the in the uh, midterms.
1: Yeah, and
0: and and that's such a good question. And
1: you're right. This is a whole another conversation we could have quickly. HR forty, I think, is um, insufficient. I understand that there are people who say, you know, better than nothing. Get, you know, b- better to have half a loaf. There are problems that are fundamental. I think there. And the biggest concern we need to have with any bill that we move through Congress around reparations is you're only gonna have one shot in a generation probably. There's not a whole lot of chance that we're gonna, we can do HR 40, it doesn't work out, and we say, let's give this another try, because that's just the American um, people, kind of as a culture, we, we give something a try and then we give up. We want one big solution, and then we don't wanna have to look at this thing again. We have a hard time understanding that you gotta chip away at things and you have to try again and again. So it'll probably take another 10 years to build up steam for a new bill if we just go all the way from beginning to end with HR 40. That's a caution for folks. So it's we gotta do it right if we're gonna do it this time. I follow Dr. Darity's edits closely in terms of the things that I think should be changed about it. Um, I, do, I think there are concerns about who appoints the commission, that the study that's going to uh, happen. There, there's an issue about whether or not they should get paid and how they get paid. Um, and then the length, the, the amount of time they have to do the, the study and then have it turn into a final report. And he thinks that should be, there should be a, a final date. Like, you've got to get this thing done. Because what they can do now is keep extending their own deadline. They can produce something after 18 months and say, we need, we need another year to keep looking at it. And they could basically make work. So the way the scenario is set up now, you have the president appointing, you have uh, six-figure salaries, and you have the the power to study forever. And so, you know, that formula to me is a recipe for disaster because you could just get on there and spend the rest of your life saying, "We well, got to look at this some more."
0: Yeah. Completion day. Yeah.
1: That's no need, completion
0: date. Yeah. That, no completion my, yeah I.
1: Do- Dr Darity says scrap it. I say I don't know about scrapping it because honestly it's quite common and I'm sure you know more about this than I do in fact for a bill to go into the process that people know is not the bill that's going to go out. So often people will say, you know, stick a bill at the front of the legislative session as it it changes to it. I say we've got something in in the process focus instead on how to have the right people in that conversation. And this gets to the midterms, which you just mentioned. I think our focus as reparationists should be, how do we make sure we have as many real advocates in the House as possible? Because in two years, we're gonna have a House uh, uh, election. We should be targeting, what do we have, 10 or 11 uh, seats make up the Democratic majority. That means both sides will be interested in a conversation with anyone who can organize in a, 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 in a district that's majority um, black, anyone who can get a bunch of those folks listening to them is gonna have the attention of candidates, including incumbents. And so you, you find 20 that, are, that could go either way. And when I say either way, I mean not only Democrat or Republican, but conservative Democrat or radical Democrat. And you start plugging reparations, and you and you make the case to the constituents that this tell them this is what you deserve. Forget about yeah. the rest of it. Forget about your potholes. Forget about the, the, you know, getting a little bit more money for your school. This first, because if you yep. can do this, you can do the rest. But if you can't do this,
0: honestly, the rest doesn't matter that much. Absolutely. I mean, if, if we remain in the economic condition we're in. As a people, you're right. Nothing else really does matter. So I think like for me, yeah. it has to be the revisions have to come with a specific end date. At yes. For this study, which should be like less than 12 months would be good for me to put some pressure on. Cash payments, not just
1: Agree 100%. A board
0: That's right. Who's going to dole out money. We don't know who's no. going to be on the board. That's just nope. right for corruption. And just- yes. It's going to lead to no progress, and right. also they have to tighten the requirements for who would receive reparations because you know there really is not too much language in regards to there's not and again slaves, you know think, it. it's it's too broad.
1: And agreed. So, I think Dr. Darity's formula is good here. I I think the the um, last twelve years identifying. As, as black and having uh, a descendant, you know, you can, you can um, trace your ancestry through at least one line. That's a good formula. It, maybe that's not perfect and we can debate that, but um, do you have, what do you think of his approach? Have you thought of other ways? I agree, it's, you have gotta limit it. it, you have to.
0: No, I like his approach, now here's the deal. Okay. We, the issue for me is that we have no entity, with the funding or the cloud of the power right now. Right. Who who has the money to, 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 to pay a team of lobbyists to go to war on this. Right. And to really launch a campaign to influence this legislation. So I think the number one thing that needs to be attempted is to get these amendments made based on... Professor Darity's edits. That's what a lobbyist would attempt to do, right? One hundred percent. Or
1: kill the bill.
0: Yeah. Or so a lobbyist would do whatever you ask them to do as long as you pay the retainer. I mean, that's right. You're right
1: about that.
0: So or and or if you know, if a lobbyist would attempt to get it revised and it and it was not possible to try to throw poison pills into that bill to kill it, to kill it by any means necessary because bills get killed every day in the House and That's in, right. in the Senate. That's and right. so we need somebody that will sink the bill. I hate to say it, but we'll sink the bill if revisions are not possible. If we can't get the revisions, it's crucial because what will happen
1: is you'll end up with a crappy bill that gets passed and for the next 20 years, every time you say reparations, people are gonna say, we gave you reparations. Remember, there's that authority that gives out $500 scholarships to kids, you know, like it'll be some goofball thing, which is why I also agree that, you know, calling state reparative justice, state level uh, and city level, municipal reparative justice reparations is problematic. Reparations is one thing, and it's cash. And you're right about that. It can't be anything but cash. There can be other things in addition, but... The, the citizens of the United States who are descended from enslaved Americans are owed roughly $850,000 each. That's Dr. Darity's number. It seems like not only a reasonable number, but a modest one when you consider all that we're talking about, everything we're rolling into this. Um, but the truth is we can never repay for what's been done. So, you know, like you uh, get Capone on a tax dodge because you can't get him on the murders he's done. We've got this little technical thing and this at least closes the wealth gap. We're not talking about and you know, go just quickly, Alan, going back back to what we were saying before, you know, what the kind of the motivation behind people getting involved. What all Americans need to understand is that we are at sea morally. We are a, a moral mess. And if we had more time I'd talk about this, but people some people will immediately understand when I say school shootings are connected to racism. The violence, the random violence we see in the street is connected to racism. We mistreat each other because we don't understand that we're equals. We don't have empathy for one another. And that's all, that all goes back to slavery. Reparative justice gives us a chance to face history and face ourselves and what we've done and make it right. Maybe not make it perfect, you know, you oh, yeah, because
0: there's going to be no perfection. But you're right. Never gonna it's never going This is it's politics. About, <laughs> it's about settling this business deal. Right. When people right. do business, right, and sometimes you yes. have to pay a business partner off or you have to pay a debt That's off. Right. You, That's you, right. You, you may not like the person after you pay them back. Y'all might hate each other. And the person who got the money might hate the person who gave the money because they were late in paying their debt, right? But the debt That's was right. paid. But the and debt this was is just, paid. And this is just business. So I think That's that we all. need to continue to push, Gabe. And, and listen, yeah. I, I appreciate you coming on because what we're going to do is, in this Faces for Reparations series, we are going to interview all types of people who support reparations just to learn about them. Because, listen, nobody's a Russian. Nobody was hired <laughs> by Putin. <That's> right. <laughs> I mean, we're actual human beings real people. who are American citizens, veterans, nonprofit leaders like yourself, people who have started credit unions, many veterans and business owners, electrical engineers, um, hairstylists, people who own uh, construction companies, also people who are just working corporate America, all types of people support reparations. So what we need to do is highlight you and highlight everyone else just to have these conversations because the goal is that we need more people to support reparations tomorrow than did today. So that Amen. is that is yes. the goal, Gabe. And I appreciate you coming on to Why Pay the Case for Reparations. This is the first episode of the year, and we are consistently going to come with it. And we will, our goal is four episodes a month from here, from now till December. So we're going to move forward with that.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Alan. I really appreciate this work you're doing.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for coming on and uh, you have a good night. Thank you. You too. All right. Thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of Why Pay? The Case for Reparations. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to streaming audio to check out our previously recorded content. As always, we ask that you leave us a five-star review and write a review so that we can expand our audience reach more people. Until next time.